Hello, I'm Pete Peterson, and this is episode 44 of the Rabbit Room Podcast. At Hutchmoot 2012, Thomas McKenzie, my wife Jennifer Trafton, and I led a session called Tales of New Creation. Here in part three of that session, I discussed the way in which I believe that we and the world we live in are the context out of which a new heaven and a new earth will one day be created. You guys read this book? Marilyn Robinson's Gilead? This is a great book. I'm not going to spoil the ending. Although it looks like I have picked up the wrong copy and it doesn't have my page marked. Okay, but I've got it written here. I'm going to read a brief brief paragraph from this book. I feel sometimes as if I were a child who opens its eyes on the world once and sees amazing things it will never know any names for and then has to close its eyes again. I know this is all mere apparition compared to what awaits us, but it is only lovelier for that. There's a human beauty in it. And I can't believe that when we have all been changed and put on incorruptibility, we will forget our fantastic condition of mortality and impermanence, the great bright dream of procreating and perishing that meant the whole world to us. In eternity, this world will be Troy, I believe, and all that is past here will be the epic of the universe the ballad they sing in the streets. Because I don't imagine any reality putting this one in the shade entirely. And I think piety forbids me to try. Marilyn Robinson, Gilead. Have you ever heard something described as traditional? It's a word that often comes with a bit of a negative connotation in our modern age. But in his essay, uh, Tradition and the Individual Talent by T.S. Eliot, which is in this book, It's called The Sacred Wood. I have not read the whole thing, but everything that I've read in it has been fantastic. In his essay, Tradition and the Individual Talent, T.S. Eliot argues that the word traditional as applied to art is not a negative label in any way, but is instead a positive one. He says, and I quote, no poet, no artist of any art has his complete meaning alone. Eliot is arguing that art is, by necessity, traditional. New works are predicated upon the old. Each new poet stands upon the bones of the dead. He is telling us that tradition is important, and to be traditional is not to be old-fashioned or conservative or rote, but to be informed by and to stand upon the long tradition of literature and creation that has come before. And there is perhaps nowhere that this is more apparent than poetry. Dante, Milton, and Eliot himself are each formidable poets taken alone. But when their works are taken in their full historical and artistic context, they are elevated to greater power by virtue of the foundations on which they stand. Foundations like Virgil, Homer, Ovid, Isaiah, and Job. Have you ever read Paradise Lost? Anybody? A couple of y'all. How about uh, Dante's Divine Comedy? These works are strewn with references and allusions to works of elder poets, writers, myths, and legends. Eliot has said that while the immature poet imitates, the mature poet steals, building into his work bricks fashioned by his forebears. And this is true of all art. It draws its power from context, requiring a knowledge of tradition in order for us to fully appreciate its current implication. Now, 
I'd like us to imagine for a moment that we, you and I, are living, as Marilyn Robinson suggests, in Troy. We are within an epic poem. Is it possible that the world we inhabit is the great work of an age? Imagine that our age is a poet's amalgamation of all those who have come before. If that's true, what might that have to do with new creation? What if we are, at this very moment, the tradition and context of the great work of an age to come? Now, I've just mentioned briefly Eliot in his essay about the importance of tradition, which is the importance of the past in literature. But what I want to talk about for a bit is the opposite end of the spectrum. What about the, what about the importance of the future? Great stories often exist not merely within the boundaries of their presentness, but often beyond it. And Tolkien is a great example. The Lord of the Rings has a very clear sense of tradition. It has its own sense of the past, both within the story and within the structure and language that the author uses to tell it. Tolkien is famous for the extensive history he built as a foundation for his tales and languages. And in fact, some have made the case that he was more concerned with his imagined history than he was with his imagined story. In Tolkien's case, I don't think that you can separate the two, and that's what many of us love about his stories so much. His writing, on the other hand, owes its form to myths and old English legends, epic poetry like Beowulf. Taken together, that is the story's past, the tradition it's built on. The present of the story is the tale that it tells, but it's the story's future, its end, that we are interested in here today. It ends, as many stories do, not with finality, but with a new beginning. The third age of Middle-earth has passed away, and the fourth age has begun. Frodo and Gandalf don't simply end. They sail away to Valinor, the undying land, beyond the boundary of the story proper. And we are left on the shore to wonder. We are left with wonder. When we turn the last page of The Lord of the Rings, it's hard to escape the feeling that the story is still going on somehow, even though we aren't privileged to its details. The same can be said of the Narnian Chronicles, as Jennifer already talked about. In both of these cases, it's as if the storytellers have led us just so far along a road, showing us sights and marvels along the way. And then on the last page of the book, the author plants a signpost, as if to say that the story goes on that way, just over that hill there. And there are untold tales that we will never know because sadly we must follow another road back into our own world, into our own present. Have any of you guys read books that leave signposts like this, that leave you with that sense that it's still going on somewhere? Does anybody want to mention one? Anybody? Come on. Yes, ma'am. Did you raise your hand? There's got to be somebody. I don't know what that is. The Far Pavilions? Historical fiction, but it finishes with the two main characters going into something new. They don't know what, and you don't know what, but you've just spent 900 pages with them. And you want to believe that it's still out there, right? Anybody else? Anybody else got one? Yes, ma'am. 
thank you very much. <laughs> I paid her to say that. <laughs> you can buy it on the merch table. Uh, <laughs> uh, yes, sir. The Farseer and what? The Golden Fool trilogies. I have not read these. Awesome. Is that fantasy? Okay. Awesome. Anybody else? One more. One more. Yes. Is that a Arthur story? No, it's um, no, that's his pen dragon cycle. Okay. This is, this is actually kind of like an adult dish nine. Gotcha. Right. I'm a big fan of Byzantium, but I have not read the Albion book. Is it a book or books? Three books. Gotcha. And was there one more hand? Yes, ma'am. Jaber Crow. Wow. Man, that's a good book. Thank you. Uh, I'm going to share a couple of my favorites, if that's okay. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to read from the end of these books, but I'm not necessarily going to spoil a whole lot. Anybody read Crime and Punishment by Dostoevsky? This is a great book. It's, it's essentially about a guy who commits a terrible tr crime on page one and then is, feels guilty about it for 400 pages. <laughs> uh, and it, it, it's much better, better than it sounds. But, but what happens is uh, he, he goes through this period of guilt and struggling with what he's done. And uh, in the end, he, he owns up to it. He admits it. He accepts his punishment. And, uh, and he goes to prison. And uh, I'm just going to read the last two paragraphs. That this is one of those that leaves me with that sense. It says, She too had been greatly agitated that day. And at night she was taken ill again. But she was so happy and so unexpectedly happy that she was almost frightened of her happiness. Seven years, only seven years. At the beginning of their happiness, at some moments, they were both ready to look on those seven years as though they were seven days. He did not know that the new life would not be given him for nothing, that he would have to pay dearly for it, that it would cost him great striving and great suffering. But that is the beginning of a new story, the story of the gradual renewal of a man, the story of his gradual regeneration, of his passing from one world into another, of his initiation into a new and unknown life. That might be the subject of a new story, but our present story is ended. That's a great book. Um, two more. They're not long. Anybody read Cry the Beloved Country by Alan? There's a debate between me and my wife over whether it's Alan Payton or Alan Patton. Does anybody know? Is it Peyton? Yes, I'm right. <laughs> Alan Patton. Peyton, sorry. <laughs> Darn it. <laughs> uh, I'm not going to spoil this. What I'm going to read, I, I wouldn't dare spoil this book. Uh, it's one of the most beautiful books in our language, I think. And you owe it to yourself to read it. Uh, all I'm going to say is that it takes place in South Africa. It's about a pastor and uh, his effort to save his son. And it ends with these words. Yes, it is the dawn that has come. The Tidihoya wakes from sleep and goes about its work of forlorn crying. The sun tips with light the mountains of Engeli and East Greca land. The great valley of the Umzimkulu is in darkness, but the light will come there also. Dotshini is still in darkness, but the light will come there also. For it is the dawn that has come as it has come for a thousand centuries never failing. But when that dawn will come of our emancipation, from the fear of bondage 
and the bondage of fear. Why that is a secret. Man, that's good. And one more. This is not a story. This is T.S. Eliot's Four Quartets. Anybody in here read this? Um, I've read this probably a dozen times straight through. It gets better every time I read it, and I still have no idea what it's about. <laughs> That's not entirely true. But, uh, but it's one of those things that is, is it's mystifying. Like, sometimes you have no idea what he's talking about, but uh, every time you read it, you get a better sense of what it is he's talking about. And I'm just going to read the very last part of uh, the poem in it called Little Gidding, and it goes like this. We shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all of our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. Through the unknown remembered gate, when the last of earth left to discover is that which was the beginning. At the source of the longest river, the voice of the hidden waterfall and the children in the apple tree not known because not looked for but heard, half heard in the stillness between two waves of the sea. Quick now, here, now, always. A condition of complete simplicity, costing not less than everything. And all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well, when the tongues of flame are enfolded into the crowned knot of fire, and the fire and the rose are one. Gotta read it. It's great. Be mystified. We love to mourn the end of a good book, don't we? We love to imagine what might be if only the author had kept on writing. There's something wonderfully tantalizing about the idea that the authors of our favorite books might have further stories to tell us if only they were still alive to do so. Flannery O'Connor, one of my favorite authors, wrote hundreds of letters in her lifetime. They're collected in a book called The Habit of Being, and they provide a fascinating document of a sharp and gifted mind. Jonathan Rogers, uh, Biography is fantastic. You've got to read it. Um, O'Connor was an exceptional woman, and I wish I'd had the chance to know her. She would have made one heck of a Hutchmoot speaker. <laughs> the last letter she ever wrote is a heartbreaking revelation to anyone who loves her stories. Only days before her death at the age of 39, in an almost illegible script, she wrote the following words to a friend. Quote, I don't know when I will send those stories. I have felt too bad to type them." End quote. She died a few days later and those untold stories went with her. And I can't help but sit back sometimes and imagine what they might have been like. That letter was her signpost, planted in the road as if to say, the stories go on, but I for the moment cannot. And I think that's part of the reason that death feels so wrong to us. Death ends a story that we know is meant to go on. When someone dies, we are left to stand on the shores and we wonder. N.T. Wright has said that all Christian language about the future is a set of signposts pointing into the mist. You see, we are standing every day in the presentness of a story, of an epic. It's going on all around us. It's full of characters, major and minor, good and evil. It's full of wars and miracles, love and hate, great beauty and terrible suffering. And it's so big that none of us can comprehend its full measure. But it's only the epic of our own age. It's the present story built on the bones of the dead, of the ages that have come before. 
And just as the hope of Abraham and Israel led to a new covenant in Christ, ushering in a new age of human history, so is our own hope, our own story, the foundation of a greater work yet untold. Because in this story, in our story, the author isn't dead. The author has not retired and turned in his pen. He's got stories left to tell. He's planted signposts all over the world, down through the ages, and they tell us that the finale is still waiting up ahead, soon to be released as it were. Could you and I be the tradition out of which the author is building something new, an epic for the age to come? As Eliot said of art, a new masterwork does not simply do away with the traditions out of which it is born, New work is built on work that has come before it, and it is interpreted in that context. Jesus says very much the same thing in Matthew. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill them. In Christ, the old is not merely done away with. It is instead redeemed. Redeem means to consider something old in a new way, in light of new information. The old does not merely pass away, it passes into and is redefined by a new way. As Christians, this is our hope. It is, our, it is fundamental to what we claim to believe. What we create in this present world, what we do, what we love, and how we live, will all one day be the context for God's new creation. That means that what we create matters. Our food matters. Our stories matter. The architecture and music and poetry all matter. It means that the world itself, its trees, its canyons, its vast oceans all matter. All creation waits to be redeemed, to be considered with fresh eyes in the light of new information. We are surrounded by the metal out of which God will one day form a new heaven and a new earth. This world, our present, is the iron out of which something bigger and bolder is being wrought. So if I write a story, I want it to point out into that mist where the author of my faith is laboring over things that my mind cannot fathom. If I build a boat, I want it to leave someone with a longing to sail it. Because in that longing, they are pointed toward undiscovered shores in the distance. In everything, I hope to leave signposts that will point toward the world to come. Not defining it, not painting pictures of it, not necessarily even trying to imagine it, but merely pointing and saying, it's that way, just over that hill, and we've only a little while until we see it. Each work of art, no matter how small, how meager, each act of love, each child, each sunrise. These are all signposts pointing to stories we will one day tell. They are the nouns, adjectives, and verbs. The metaphors, allusions, and similes of books waiting to be written. We can't write them yet because we haven't been there. We haven't seen the new country. We are the old tradition waiting to be called into new meaning. And on the last page of every book, we ought to be writing to be continued. The author isn't done with this old place. He's got big plans. Leave signposts. I want to take a minute. I'm going to tell you about a story. 
and then I'm going to leave you with a signpost. A couple of months ago, I watched a documentary called I Think We're Alone Now. Do you remember Tiffany? Singer from the 80s. The documentary is about two Tiffany stalkers, one of whom is named Kelly. Kelly is hermaphroditic, a person with the physical traits of both genders. Kelly's parents divorced when she was a child, and they had joint custody of her. When she stayed with her mom, she was made to dress like a girl. When he stayed with his dad, he was made to dress like a boy. Think about that. What, think about what that must do to a young mind. As an adult, I don't think Kelly has any idea who he or she is. Her story is profoundly sad. Kelly is an alcoholic, a drug addict, a lonely, broken person with shifting ideas of who she is and who loves her and who she can love. As I watched, I wanted so badly for someone to tell Kelly that brokenness and pain and confusion don't have to be the end of her story. That moment, of course, never came. The credits rolled, and I went to bed wrecked by an ache, wrecked by the way I saw the curse played out in Kelly's life. I couldn't sleep. And so I got up and I wrote this signpost. It's called For Kelly. When you stand naked in front of the mirror and you see in your flesh a terrible question wrought and you cry and ask, who will love me? And you scream, demanding, who has done this? When you plug up your ears to keep out the silence, strain to hear the voice that sees your beauty. For you are a living symbol of all that must and shall be amended. I carry my portion of our curse where none can see, but you, like a prophet, live yours, wrestle it as we avert our eyes. You expose the division in the heart of creation, and in your pain, in your twisted flesh, I am reminded of the world to come. Wherein nature shall be untangled, then raveled once more, in its best and truest and final form. Know, too, that your own shall be whole. The, answer, the unanswered question knit to your bones shall be supplanted by an exclamation, and then your glorious body shall proclaim the end of all divided things. What is the cross if it is not a signpost? Jesus said that he is the way. He's a signpost. He is what's over the hill awaiting us. The world needs to know that the road is taking us somewhere. The nations need to know that pain and loneliness and suffering and hatred will not have the last word. The curse is not the end of the story. Because the author is even now fast at his work. He is leaving signposts everywhere we look, and he calls us to leave them too. Tell the world it matters. Remind the world that it is one day going to be remade. It's going to be rewritten into the epic of the universe. The ballad they will sing in the streets. Thank you. For more 
information regarding the songs, writers, and artists featured here, please visit rabbitroom.com. Rabbit Room music composed and performed by Ben Shive.